Hi, I'm Brian Fabian Crane and I'm here with Sebastian Couture. On February 12th and 13th, we attended the Inside Bitcoins conference in Berlin. After two months of podcasting together, it was the first time we met in person. We had lots of fun, interviewing many people from the Bitcoin community, attending interesting talks and capturing Bitcoin at this unique moment in its history. This is one of a series of episodes about this conference. This episode features two inspiring talks on Bitcoin and its potential as a tool for change. We kick off with Oliver Flaskamper, Managing Director at Bitcoin.de, who gives his keynote presentation on why Bitcoin cannot be banned. Then, Marsha Hoffman, an attorney involved in a broad range of technology law and policy issues, gives an amazing talk about privacy, free speech, and government policy as it applies to Bitcoin. Enjoy. Let's give it a big round of applause. Nice. All right, so... Uh... We're going to have a variety of formats. We're going to have some panels. We're going to have some standalone sessions. Uh, I'll explain more later, but we're really lucky to have Oliver Glasshopper giving the keynote this morning. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little secret. It's the first time he's done a speech in English. I was talking to him earlier. His English is amazing. I can't believe it. So let's give him a big round of applause. Yep. Thank you, Stuart, for the introduction. It's a great honor for me to be delivering the inaugural address at this event. I'm delighted that so many Bitcoiners came from around the whole world to the internet capital Berlin. I would also like to welcome the representatives of the NSA, CIA, GHCH, spies, and other secret service agents. We know that you are here today, and we are already looking forward to relaxed, informal discussions with you during the coffee breaks. <laughs> First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. This quote, which is often attributed to Mahatma Gandhi, but more likely comes from the American Union activist Nicholas Klein, is often brought up in, a conne in connection with Bitcoin. Almost every innovation probably went through these each four phases and had to fight a great deal of resistance before it became generally accepted. Right now, Bitcoin probably stands somewhere between love and fight. That Bitcoin will win the fight in the end is only a question of time. Bitcoin is a plea for freedom. In Berlin in particular, we know how strong the desire for freedom can be. This desire has even been known to cause worlds to fall. As with every great idea, there are many naysayers in the beginning. The light bulb. Petroleum manufacturers derided as it as the devil's work. The electric automobile, too, has not generally been accepted because the automobile and all lobbies are very large and powerful. But each year it gains acceptance because the idea is good. In the case of cryptocurrencies, there is also a powerful lobby. In 2010, banks worldwide earned approximately 590 billion US dollars on payments alone. And then Bitcoin comes along and makes payment virtually free? Naturally, there's uncertainty and fear. But do we still use oil lamps to light our houses? 
I do not think so. If we take a closer look at recent headlines, Overstock and Tiger Direct accept Bitcoin, I can put my tuition fees in Cyprus with Bitcoin, eBay and Google are thinking very, very openly about Bitcoin, and probably the most powerful indicator, my 81-year-old neighbor has a Bitcoin client on his Android smartphone, and he thinks it's cool. <laughs> Karl Ludwig Thiele, one of the six executive committee, members of the German Federal Bank, who is responsible for the cash and payment division, noted in an interview with the leading German business newspaper Handelsblatt, Bitcoin is just a niche phenomenon. Presently, about only 70,000 transactions with Bitcoin per day take place worldwide. This is infinitesimally small if we keep in mind that in Germany alone, per working day, 24 million transfers and 35 million debits are transacted. The German Emperor, Willem II, supposedly said in 1992, the automobile is, is passing fast. I believe in the horse. Only a few years later, the emperor had an enormous automobile collection of its own and had become a huge fan of automobiles. Bill Gates claimed in 1995 that the internet was only hype. Nine years later, in 2004, he was completely off base again when he claimed that spam would be thing of past in two years. 2004. In the, in the beginning, everything is a niche, but nothing is as strong as an idea whose time has come. As the French writer Victor, Victor Mario Hugo said, Bitcoin, Bitcoin has come to stay. When I first read about Bitcoin in 2011, I was electrified. The feeling reminded me of the time around 90, 1997 when I bought my first domains. At that time, everyone, everyone thought I was off my rocker. How, how can you invest so much money in nothing, in bits and bytes? Nobody understood me at the time. In their eyes, I was a crazy alien. When I wanted to buy a domain for 10,000 Fiat Deutschmarks, some members of my friends and family had serious concerns about my mental health. I bought the domain and wanted to buy even more of them, so I went to my bank and wanted to use the domains as a security for credit to buy more domains. <laughs> I tried to explain my account manager from the bank what domains are, why they have a value, and why domains were even more suitable and as a security interest than a car or a house. He looked at his computer for a long time. Then he looked at me and said, Mr. Flaskenbach. Who knows whether this internet will even exist in five years? <laughs> My first domain, which I bought for 10,000 Deutschmarks in 1997, sold only two years later for 50,000 Deutschmarks, and it was and it was not only my last good domain deal. What does it? What does this, What does all this have to do with Bitcoin? A lot, because domains and Bitcoin have a lot in common. Both are virtual, both are unique, and there is a functioning market for both. Admittedly, we are currently experiencing significant inflation in the domain market through the introduction of hundreds of new domain endings. But that is another commonality of Bitcoin and domains, because the many new domain endings are to .com domains what altcoins for Bitcoin. 
The more new domain endings come to the market, the more valuable the .com domains become. And the more altcoins come to the market, the more valuable Bitcoin will become. Just like my gut feeling told me in 1997 that domains would become the next big thing, my gut feeling also told me in 2011 that I absolutely have to be there when it comes to Bitcoin. I felt, I felt again a great opportunity lay waiting there. I called my team together and told them about Bitcoin. My voice trembled. I was looking at many people rolling their eyes in disbelief. Finally, I was able to push my idea through and we began to develop our marketplace, Bitcoin.de. Just three months later, we were online in September 2011. At this point in time, we had already left the first speculative bubble of April 2011 behind us and the exchange rate was in free fall towards worthlessness. I admit that there, was, that there were many times in which I doubted that I had made the right decision. Yet every entrepreneur here in this room knows that no, that no idea works out and failures are simply a part of doing business. It was much the same when I began my first internet project in 1998. As I had become single again at that particular time, I thought it would make a virtue of necessity and establish the single and Freizeit connection. This was one of the first online matchmaking agencies in Germany. Over many nights, I developed a database using Microsoft Access for automated matchmaking for men and women. My advertising for the service was done in the classical manner via classified ads in newspapers, but there was naturally also a telephone hotline. Then I met this evening, when I was done with my regular job, it was hoping that new customers would call. After about three months, I had a pleasant chat on the telephone with a new client. At the end of the long conversation, he finally asked me, Mr. Flaskemper, be honest, how many women do you already have in your database then? I didn't need to think this over for very long. I did not have a single woman as client. <laughs> because it was 1998 and the percentage of women on the internet in Germany was at quite noticeable 0.5%. As I had no desire to operate a matchmaking service exclusively for men, <laughs> I wound up this project frustrated and devoted myself to other projects. I had to learn that the time has simply not yet come for many ideas. I experienced something similar for a short time at the end of 2011. Had the time not yet come for Bitcoin as well? Little better, I wanted to be a part of it, even if this project ultimately went down to defeat. Barefoot or patent leather was the motto. Oder wie Harald Junke sagen würde, barfuß oder Lackschuh. This, this is because Bitcoin was and is experimental. Will Bitcoin nonetheless fail on one of these days? I don't know. Is Bitcoin a payment means or a store of value? Thus an object, that an object of speculation? In my view, Bitcoin is digital gold with a payment option. It possesses the main advantage of gold, namely that it is scarce and that it is furthermore ideal for making payments around the world. 
online as well as offline. Golden fact, also, gold is in fact also a legal means of payment. For example, the Kruger Rand in South Africa. But anyone who has ever attempted to buy an automobile with gold will certainly have experienced the surprise response of the salesman. The problem of verification of authenticity alone excludes gold as, as a practical means of payment. With bitcoins, on the other hand, I do not have this problem. There are only two great dangers that could destroy or stop bitcoin. Danger number one, the technical problem. I think we are all agreed that a major technical problem would mean the end of bitcoin. Should it become possible to compromise the system permanently, then Bitcoin would immediately become worthless. And normally, in this moment, I would say that each and every hacker and scientist and even spy agents in the world had now more than five years to find weaknesses in the open source code for Bitcoin. And with every new day, it becomes more, becomes even less likely that such a serious weakness will still be found. But it cannot be excluded. Bitcoin is a technology, and as we all know, and thus scalable like any other technology. There are already problems. What hasn't to be banned in the world at some point? In many countries, alcohol was forbidden for so many years and later was allowed again. Why? Because laws against the people's will cannot be enforced. And because you can't chance the Charleston without alcohol. In America, you are not allowed to smoke a Cuban cigar, and in Jersey, Jersey, women over 200 pounds are prohibited from riding horses in shorts. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> it's, it's really true. <laughs> I'm digressing, but what I'm saying is that bans are sometimes completely ineffective. I'm not especially knowledgeable about the horsewomen in Guernsey, but I know that the former governor of California appreciates a good Monte Cristo. <laughs> the possession of gold was also forbidden at several times in the past, not only in the US. A law was passed basically overnight, and the, and the next morning all bank safe deposits boxes were sealed. These had to be opened in the presence of a finance official, and any gold found had to be sold to the state at a fixed price. In France, there was also a ban of this sort from 1936 to 1937. During this period, the Hungarian, Hungarian speculator Andrei Kostolani, known in Germany as a trading guru, made a lot of money by trading gold from Switzerland with French customers. Laws only accomplish something if they are accepted by the majority of the population, are understandable and can be enforced. Therefore, you cannot ban Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not bad. Bitcoin is the first truly free market currency in human history. Who knows this man? Please raise your hand. Okay, there are some. It is the Austrian Nobel Prize winning economist Friedrich August von Hayek. On the left in his early years and on the right in his later years. Friedrich August von Hayek was an advocate of a free market currency throughout his life. 
Friedrich August von Hayek once said the following about money. The history of national dealings with currency is, with the exception of some sort, fortunate periods, the history of endless deception. In this regard, governments have shown themselves to be far more immoral than any private corporation could have been that brought its own currency to market in competition with other private corporations. And continued, money must be protected primarily against the state. Nobel Prize winner in the 70s. There is no justification for the eagerly preserved myth that there must be a uniform type of currency within a given territory. We will not get any sort of so-called upstanding currency until others other are free to offer us a better one than the ruling government in each respective case. We received respectable money in 2009. Satoshi Nakamoto was the one who brought it to us. If it were up to me, then he would have won the Nobel Prize for Economics. Friedrich August von Hayek would have undoubtedly also, also nominated him for it. As a prize winner, he would have had the right to make nominations in any case. If anyone wants to ban alcohol, gold or bitcoins, then you might as well ban breathing or gravity as well. It's clear that there can be legislation against bitcoins in virtual currencies, but it's naive to believe that that can stop bitcoin. It's almost like when a little girl plays hide-and-seek and covers her eyes and believes that nobody can see her. <laughs> we live in a global world that is becoming more and more networked. Wanting to ban bitcoin in such a world is like the attempt of a lifeguard who wants to divide a swimming pool by using a line for kids who will pee and for kids who will not pee. <laughs> Anyone who wants to ban Bitcoin has either banned the internet or at least effectively, effectively banned encryption in the internet and do it in each of, one, of the one of the one, 193 countries of the world. However, such a ban would only harm the countries themselves. Clearly, one can close Bitcoin markets from one, one day to the next. But, what would, but what, what would be the consequences? Bitcoin would immediately become 100% underground currency without any possible, possible controls by the countries, which would then only be flying blind. Currently, countries in which Bitcoin has not yet been banned can make a correlation between otherwise completely anomalous transaction and real people. If Bitcoin is banned, enhance Bitcoin markets as well, then countries would lose the only possibility of getting them from the information. In my opinion, the possibility of getting data from the system is also the only reason why Bitcoin is not banned. There is no other reason. Most countries know that they would knock, out, knock that small dull sword out of their own hands. So it's better to have a small dull sword than none at all. This, is naturally, does, this naturally does not exclude there being other attempts to ban Bitcoin. The only question is how long the ban will last. In Germany, 
We have a good, good general legal and taxation conditions for Bitcoin. In contrast to other countries, anyone who exclusively trades Bitcoin privately for himself doesn't need a permit from the authorities. Anyone who buys Bitcoins and only sell them after a year doesn't have to pay any tax on a possible speculative gain. That's uh, legal and German. Businesses that want to deal with Bitcoin commercially can submit an application to the Federal Supervisory Authority. Only the topic of sales tax for companies requires further clarification. Allow me a small advertising block for Bitcoin.de at the end. More than 150,000 customers are now registered with us. As a peer-to-peer marketplace, our trading volume is still considerably, considerably less than markets such as Bitstamp or BTCE. Therefore, we also want to become a real exchange and are developing the appropriate, appropriate difficult word, measures specifically for this. Furthermore, we also want to take a step towards the real exchange and are striving for a listing of our company on the stock exchange in the next few weeks. By the way, if you later measure, later Marseille, yourself for our Bitcoin Bookie marketplace place with your ID at our booth in the full year, then you will receive a paper wallet and perhaps win a Bitcoin with a little luck. Okay, I'm coming to the end. We decide whether the idea of Bitcoin will be a success, not the governments. We must encourage more retailers to accept Bitcoin from day to day. We must issue Bitcoin. We must issue Bitcoins because otherwise the currency is not a currency. We must spread our idea with a great deal of self-confidence so that people with fiat money seems like the inhabitants of Papua New Guinea when missionaries arrive in 1875 with a means of payment that was different from Shell. And they recognized, yes, it's better, it's easier, we want it too. And because we are in Berlin, I say, we are the people, we are Bitcoin. Tear down, tear down the fiat wall. <laughs> <laughs> And I will end with the toast of the Bitcoin epicenter in the Route 77 in Berlin's Bitcoin Keach, which can be heard from more and more voices on the first Tuesday of the month to Bitcoin, to blockchain eternity and beyond. Thank you very much. based in San Francisco, and uh, for a little more than a decade now, I've been litigating uh, cases and counseling individuals and companies on issues involving the law and basically technology, the internet, most um, specifically. Um, my specialties are in areas like privacy, data protection, free expression, security, uh, uh, encryption is something I'm particularly interested in. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit today about, about Bitcoin and, and how 
it touches these particular values and, and what that's all about. I apologize for the color. It looks a lot better on my screen than here. The colors are a little bit off, but um, hopefully you can read it and it won't be too garish. Oh, all right. Wow. <laughs> all right. So basically, here's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I think the point is really interesting and exciting because the way that the protocol is designed, uh, it has a couple of interesting little features that um, are very uh, protective of civil liberties and individual rights like free expression and privacy. And um, as an attorney doing the type of law that I do, I think that that is uh, something that we really ought to think about and we ought to take advantage of. And so one of the big, one of the big questions I think for the Bitcoin community is, um, are these values that we care about protecting? And if so, how do we continue to make sure that those are, um, are safeguarded as the landscape changes? So um, I think a really good way to frame the conversation, and as we continue through this presentation, I hope you'll, you'll think about this. Um, there's this, um, so Lawrence Lessig is a law professor in the United States, and back in the mid-90s, he wrote this, this book that was really a seminal work in my field. It's called Code. And um, the basic idea of, of, Les, of Lessig's book is that anytime we regulate something, um, we tend to think of it as something that, that is law-based, but really regulation comes from a bunch of different factors. Um, and when I say a bunch, I mean four. <laughs> um, there's law, certainly, but also architecture, the way that our system is created. Uh, there are market forces that uh, impose regulation of one sort or another. And then also social norms, meaning um, the, the decisions we make as a community, the rules we make as a community that, that aren't imposed by law, but, but really imposed by, by people who get together and decide to do something. So voluntary codes of conduct, let's say. And so when I think of, um, of, of Bitcoin, and I think when we talk about Bitcoin, we realize that a lot of these factors actually are very strong. Um, the, the way that the system is built, the architecture of the system is a, is a huge force in the Bitcoin system. The market needs no introduction. I mean, obviously, because we're talking about um, a, a commodity or a currency, um, market forces are very big and important. And then there, there are social codes. Everybody who uh, participates in the Bitcoin system um, is following a set of rules that have been determined by the community, right? And so one question is, how does law fit into this? And um, how do these things complement each other or work against each other? So something to think about as we continue. So the two features of the, the, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin protocol that I think are really interesting uh, from, from the perspective of the issues that I work on uh, are these. First of all, the pseudonymous transactions. Um, I choose the word pseudonymous rather than anonymous because um, they mean two slightly different things. And uh, people have noted over time that Bitcoin transactions really aren't anonymous. And that's true. Anonymity means that you really don't know at all who is connected to something. But pseudonymity means that there is an identifier, it just isn't personally identifiable for a person, right? And I think that that's really what we're talking about when we talk about Bitcoin transactions. Um, we have public keys. They are, um, they are publicly recorded. Um, anybody can see the transactions and what public key is associated with the transaction. But if we're not able to link that public key to a specific person, 
without additional information. Um, there may be ways that you can link um, a public key to a particular individual, and it may be if somebody uses the same key pair for various transactions, you can connect various transactions together. But um, this takes some work and some additional information. And so uh, the, the pseudonymous nature of the transactions uh, is, is interesting and it's important uh, for protecting civil liberties, as we'll talk about in a moment. The other thing is the fact that uh, the Bitcoin system is decentralized. Um, it, it is meant to not rely on any trusted third parties. It's meant to be an entirely peer-to-peer -peer, uh, currency payment system. And um, that is something, uh, as we'll talk about in a moment, that is very important as well. Okay, so... Oh, that looks better than I thought it might. Uh, okay, so first of all, my first basic premise is that uh, pseudonymity is an important safeguard for civil liberties and the Bitcoin community should think about that when uh, coming up with new businesses and, and working in the future. So financial transactions, I think, are a form of expression. Um, I am not going to get too US-centric because I know that this is a very international crowd. I'm going to talk just a little bit about US law because that's what my expertise is in and it's what I know best. But, um, of course, the freedom to say what you want and associate with who you want is something that is uh, considered, I think, at this point, a general, basic, fundamental human right. And it's uh, in the, the UN's uh, Declaration, uh, Declaration of Universal Human Rights. Um, it's Article 19. And in the United States, uh, the freedom of uh, speech is the First Amendment to our Constitution. Of course, many other countries also have this very basic constitutional right. Um, in the United States, it's been resolved now through case law for a couple of decades that online expression is protected by the First Amendment just as much as offline expression. And the publication of code is also protected speech. Um, and these are the cases in the United States that, that stand for these propositions. Now, interestingly, we've also had a series of cases over the past um, 30 years or so that make it clear that political spending is considered um, a protected speech interest. And um, this has come about in the context of a bunch of uh, campaign finance regulation cases. But the basic idea is that one of the most highly valued forms of speech that there is is political speech. Um, and we care about this because people have uh, great disagreements about it, but it's, it's hugely important. And um, political speech is considered more high value than, than most other types of speech, at least in the United States. And the Supreme Court has recognized that spending um, in uh, support of your political speech is uh, basically a, a, an essential part of that speech. Um, the, the fact of the matter is often if people are not able to spend money toward a certain message, they're not able to get the message out or they're not able to get it out in, a, in an effective way. And so uh, expenditures are uh, sort of, um, they are so intertwined with political speech sometimes that they simply are part of that protected speech. So I think that's very interesting. Um, I, I do think, you know, we certainly have not seen any cases yet involving Bitcoin and freedom of speech and exactly what the speech interest is, is there. But my sense from looking at the cases is that in the United States, at least, I think the purpose of the transaction is probably the key. Um, 
it's probably uh, the thing that will decide whether or not a court would say that um, that a particular transaction, financial transaction, is considered protected speech, right? For example, in the United States, um, speech that is basically in and of itself illegal is considered to have very low or no protection. Um, and I think that an expenditure yeah, in the service of, say, you know, money laundering is not going to be something that would be considered protected. But if we're talking about a situation where an individual is making a transaction because they want to put money toward a political cause that they care about or a social cause, um, I think that a court would consider that uh, to be a very high-value uh, uh, form of action. And I think a, a court might very well decide that something like that is protected by, by the First Amendment. So, so let's think about pseudonyms and how they enhance that particular right. So this is an excerpt from um, Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper, uh, which laid out uh, Bitcoin for the first time. And there's a section in there that he uh, characterizes as privacy. And he talks about how um, there is a privacy-enhancing functionality uh, to the way that um, the Bitcoin transactions are reported, are performed and reported. And he makes clear that it's uh, not a perfect uh, situation. Um, but pseudonymity, I think, is, is very um, interesting in this respect because it facilitates, number one, free expression, uh, privacy, and third, free association. And the way that this works, I would say, is that there are many opinions that are unpopular. And they are so unpopular people would uh, perhaps not express these opinions at all if they had to actually associate themselves with them. Um, in the U.S., there's this uh, great tradition of political speech that's done uh, under a pseudonym. Some of the founding fathers uh, wrote what, a, what are known as Federalist Papers under one pseudonym. It's impossible to know who wrote what, but uh, these were criticisms of the government. And so, you know, pseudonymity is something that uh, can um, empower people to uh, engage in expression they otherwise might not. Pseudonymity can also uh, facilitate privacy and um, ensure that, that people have um, a sphere in which to uh, think through their ideas and decide what to express or not express. And free association, I think, is part of this too. And we have some case law that, that discusses this as well. There are some groups out there that are um, associated with unpopular ideas. And um, you may want to associate with the people who espouse those ideas or with these groups, but you may not want that generally known. And that may be something that you may not want your government to know, right? And so I think that this is important as well. Um, if you're interested in Bitcoin as free speech and you want to follow up, I would actually recommend this article, which was published just last week by um, a law student at Harvard. Um, and, and basically, she really hashes through some of these free speech questions and discusses freedom of association uh, in the, the context of Bitcoin. Very good. All right, the second feature of Bitcoin that I think is really interesting from the perspective of the tech of law practice is decentralization. Uh, and I think this is good for so many reasons. Um, so the protocol as originally designed uh, is supposed to be decentralized because very specifically, Satoshi didn't want to have to rely on trusted third parties. They're supposed to not be in the system. But as a practical matter, I think that there is a great deal of centralization that is propped up within the system. Um, 
And I think that this comes in in many forms, um, exchanges, marketplaces, discussion forums. When you think about it, it really comes down to anybody who's providing a service uh, to others acts as something of a centralization point. And some of those points are bigger and some of those points are smaller. You know, Mount Gox, for example, is huge. Um, but really, when we think about the users of Bitcoin, uh, there isn't a whole lot of decentralization, I think, at this point. I think that people who mine their Bitcoins to begin with, uh, you know, they're in a good spot. They don't really have to transact with some of these centralization points if they don't want to, because they, they have managed to get their own points. And then there are some hand-to-hand transactions, but that's pretty rare. And so at this point, I think if you are a user of Bitcoin and you are an entrant into the market for the first time, the chances are good that you're going to have to interact with some of these centralization points. Um, and so they've become a fundamental part of the system. Now, in internet law, we talk about intermediaries. And I don't know that this is um, a word that the Bitcoin community uses. When I say an intermediary, basically I'm talking about service providers. Um, and service providers are always, in a way, middlemen. Right? Um, they probably are working with other service providers, um, and they're also working with users. But they um, are these, these choke points. Um, and because they're choke points, they're prime targets for regulation. And I think that we've already started to see this. Um, in the US, we now have regulations from FinCEN uh, that uh, are aimed at exchanges. And um, exchanges like Mt. Gox, even though you know, Mt. Gox is really based elsewhere, um, is, is, Mt. Gox is, is basically assented to these regulations. There have been some, uh, some indictments of some people involved in exchanges and um, their connection to money laundering. And just last week, I think, um, we saw some states in the United States starting to actually go after exchanges too. So it's very clear at this point, I think, that exchanges are totally these choke points. And I think those, as, as you look forward in your work, you should think about the fact that service providers are in this vulnerable position. And to the extent that there are laws, they're the easiest ones to target. And if you target an intermediary, uh, you get uh, greater regulating effects throughout the system. Um, it's easier to go after intermediaries than it is end users, even if end users are the ones doing the behavior that you're trying to target, right? So another thing important that is important to think about with intermediaries is the fact that they have a lot of discretion to decide what their practices are. And what that means is that they can decide to uh, empower others, uh, make others' uh, efforts possible, or they can cut them off. And um, Here's another very recent example that I'm sure you all heard about. Um, Apple decided to pull uh, a, a Bitcoin wallet from the App Store. Um, it was the uh, only Bitcoin wallet there was in the Apple App Store. Uh, I think Apple has been, um, it's, it's very well known that Apple has, has not been uh, receptive to Bitcoin. And, you know, on the one hand, Apple is a company, it gets to decide what it wants to promote and what it doesn't, and it has every right to do that, right? I mean, just like you and your companies, you, have the, you can decide who you want to do business with. But this is unfortunate in certain respects as well, because when Apple makes a decision like this, it means, number one, 
that um, users of Apple products, specifically I would say the iPhone and probably the iPad, uh, are going to have more limited options for how to um, engage in the Bitcoin system. And, you know, it may be that certain iPhone users who would be interested in uh, participating in the system will choose not to because it's just not easy enough to do it. Um, the other problem with this is that I think that we have people uh, who would like to develop products uh, for iPhones and for iPads, and they know that they can't get those products out there uh, because they won't be distributed through the App Store. And so this has some effects that I think are very anti-innovation and anti-end-user um, that are unfortunate. And you know, if um, other platforms decided to take similar steps, what would that mean? It would mean that the options would be even more limited. Um, I think it's worth thinking about the WikiLeaks block. Back in 2010, um, PayPal and Visa and MasterCard all made the decision that they weren't going to process uh, financial transactions so that people could donate to WikiLeaks. And um, this had uh, this was a big news story at the time. I think it was very interesting because WikiLeaks, um, there's a lot of speculation about whether what, we, what WikiLeaks does is legal. Now, there's never been an indictment brought against anybody associated with WikiLeaks for distributing classified information or anything. No country has taken steps against WikiLeaks, even though we do know in the United States there was a grand jury convened to investigate uh, WikiLeaks, right? And yet, payment processors made a decision based on some, apparently some, informal pressure from the U.S. government to not process transactions. And, um, you know, this could have had the uh, practical effect of, of choking off WikiLeaks entirely and, and making it uh, simply go out of business to the extent that it's in business. Um, now, that didn't happen uh, in part uh, because people have donated quite a bit uh, through the Bitcoin system, which is something, by the way, that uh, was very concerning to Satoshi back when uh, WikiLeaks first wanted to suggest that people do this. And um, I think Satoshi, he or they, um, you know, they were very concerned about this. And they worried about the potential backlash that WikiLeaks could uh, bring on the Bitcoin system. Um, I understand that WikiLeaks at that time didn't push for donations of Bitcoin, but after uh, Satoshi kind of went off the radar, um, Julian Assange started encouraging people to use Bitcoin. And at this point, this is, uh, this is how they get most of their money. Most of their money is for Bitcoin donations. And I think it's interesting, it brings us back to the speech angle. Uh, if you're a person who wants to donate to WikiLeaks, you might like to do that in a way uh, where your identity is not necessarily known to others. You might, that's a very good reason why you might want to support something in a way that uh, is not immediately and obviously known to government regulators. So I think what this shows is that decentralization is a good thing. Um, more decentralization, I think, makes the entire Bitcoin system more robust because we move away from this choke point problem, choke points being our intermediaries being choke points for regulation. Uh, I'm not an economist, but I think it could help to stabilize the market because we would uh, not be so dependent upon 
just a handful of big actors like Mount Cross. And so every time one of the big Bitcoin exchanges has a disaster, it would mean some volatility in the market, I would think. Um, more decentralization fosters new innovation by lowering entry uh, barriers to the market. So when we have little innovators who have a really cool new idea for something, it's easier for them to get their idea out, right? I also think decentralization attracts new consumers because um, I think it will make uh, the use of Bitcoin as an actual currency that is something to buy something with uh, more viable. And I think it will also encourage innovators to come up with more user-friendly innovations. And, um, of course, I have an ulterior motive because I care about things like free speech and privacy. I think more decentralization is good for those things as well. Um, I think that more innovation, uh, more engagement uh, by consumers, uh, and more players in the space uh, is just better. Because when we have a few big players in the space, it's so easy to kind of crack down on those guys. And the more uh, decentralization we have, uh, the harder that is. Um, I would point out that uh, there are some folks out there who are actively trying to develop um, uh, things based on Bitcoin that are meant to preserve privacy and free expression. Um, for example, there is Namecoin, which is going to be a DNS system based on the Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin model um, that they're hoping is going to be more censorship resistant than our current DNS model. Um, Dark Wallet is, um, a planned, um, is a planned wallet uh, that people can put in their browsers that are going to have privacy by default. And ZeroCoin is something that some academics are developing. Um, it's going to be uh, a system that actually is, is built off of Bitcoin, but sort of operates beside Bitcoin in a way that can ensure truly anonymous transactions, which is interesting. So there is innovation in this space to try to build in sort of baking in civil liberties into the architecture. So, the my takeaways. Number one, I think spending can be considered an expression uh, that, is, that you have a right to in the right circumstances, and that's worth protecting. Uh, financial transactions are closely intertwined with speech, association, privacy. We should keep thinking about that as the system develops. And, uh, Bitcoin pseudonymity um, supports these values, and so it's a good thing. Um, and decentralization is spectacular, and I think that uh, the Bitcoin community should do whatever it can to continue to foster that. And uh, for one reason why that is is because the big intermediaries out there that we rely on so heavily now, they're in the crosshairs. And uh, the more innovation, the better for the whole system on the whole. So... That's what I got. Any questions? We were just talking about the uh, Fifth Estate, the WikiLeaks movie last night, and uh, a lot of the footage was actually shot right here. Uh, they showed uh, uh, clips of Takales, clips of this building, and the uh, parking lot across the street. That's where Julian Assange was coming out of the movie. So, uh, questions? Yeah.
Hello, my name is Stephen Keller. I'm here today for the Berlin Bitcoin Exchange, which is a so-called meetup group where you can uh, trade Bitcoins face-to-face -face for cash or whatever you like. There's no English whatsoever. We don't care what people do there. Um, um, so I'm really in favor of everything that you said about decentralization and empowering people to transfer money wherever they want. But actually, I think you're preaching to the choir somewhat here. Um, we need to get this message out to the Bitcoiners with this kind of conference, but we should uh, I, I know, get to the point where any NGO is accepting Bitcoin as a means of donation. And that's my question. How do we get these NGOs, this civil rights movement, to actually embrace Bitcoin? Because my experience is more that they think, okay, this Bitcoin thing is just about money. If you want to get rich, we stay away from that. And they don't embrace it as they don't understand the benefits they could have from the system. I totally agree with you, and um, I used to work for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, as some of you may know, uh, we uh, got some early Bitcoin donations and then decided not to accept it anymore. And the reason was because our um, uh, the executives of the organization were really concerned about it. They were concerned about whether, uh, you know, they, they felt like there are complex financial regulations out there, how do we know whether this is okay? Are we doing something wrong by, by accepting it? So, um, you know, there, there was a lot of uncertainty, even for a very tech-savvy organization. Um, and ultimately, they reversed that decision, and now they accept Bitcoin. But I expect that a lot of, um, a lot of NGOs uh, probably go through that same analysis. And I think, first of all, they think, you have to be very technical to accept it. We don't know how to do this. Number two, is this even okay? And so I think that um, as more people, uh, more normal, average people, start to accept Bitcoin, um, I think NGOs will just normally be part of that. But I think also, you know, to the extent that they find the technology uh, daunting, I think offering assistance to help them get set up and figure out how to accept it would probably be appreciated. And maybe get them oil when they need one. Yes. <laughs> Firstly, I want to say it was probably probably exactly what we wanted to hear. Thank you very much. Thank you. But uh, I wanted to comment on one point about the community. Yeah. And for the folks who know about Bitcoin, you know, the protocol itself essentially doesn't uh, relate to anything about the identity, right? So my question is that for law enforcement who really has a genuine need to determine it, the protocol doesn't allow it to just plain kind of advocate. What solution right. do you have? I mean, as merchants, we really don't want to deal with the identity of our consumers. But at the same time, I get asked this question a lot as to, you know, if there's a genuine subpoena not really, you know, dragnet-type surveillance, the protocol really doesn't allow you to entertain that request. Uh, you could be behind a power browser, you could be, you know, you could be non-linking you physically. Right. What, what, what's your answer to that? Well, you know, for one thing, I think that's how it's designed. And there's not much that anybody can do about that, right? Um, to the extent that law enforcement, I think, um, or let's say governments, are going to try to combat that problem, I think that they'll probably do it by encouraging intermediaries to collect more personal information about the people that they transact with, right? And um, I think that as long as that's not legally required, then... There's no need to do that, right? But I, I do take your point um, that that makes it very hard for law enforcement to do their job. Um, on the other hand, you know, we've had things like Tor for a long time. 
Um, and, you know, cash has always presented this problem too. And so while I think that um, this is something that's important and that we need to think about, I don't think it's a novel or new problem. I think that um, criminals have always taken steps in one regard or another to uh, cover their tracks. And there have always been things they've taken advantage of to try to do that. Technology, but also even well before we ever had the internet, right? And so I think it's just an ongoing battle, and I don't think it's anything new. It just is what it is. I think law enforcement always feels like its job could be easier. And I'm sure it could be, but we've also made you know, the decision uh, in various governments to uh, strike a balance between individual rights and law enforcement and their powers and what they need, what tools they need in order to, to do their job. And you know, I, I don't think it's clear to me, at least not at this point, that you know, basically we need to make all of these intermediaries collect a bunch of personal information in order to make law enforcement more able to do their job. Um, I think that we're just, I think we're not there yet. Yeah, thanks a lot. But uh, in terms of cash, it's not across the border. So you know, that's, that's true. So this is that, that is definitely a new, yeah, that is a new aspect. Anybody else? I guess we got everybody. Well, Marsha, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode about Inside Bitcoins Berlin. If you liked our coverage of the conference, please consider tipping us at epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter. We really enjoyed providing you coverage of this conference. We're excited about the journey we're on with Epicenter Bitcoin, and we're grateful to have you as our listeners.